Thank you, Chris and worship team. What a joy it is to celebrate with those who are baptized, uh, just to hear of what God has done in their lives. Uh, We're going to spend a few moments together now just looking at a precious scripture from our Lord in Matthew 13. If you would turn in your Bible to Matthew 13 as we look at our greatest treasure, our greatest treasure. With baptisms and communion, we won't have as much time as we normally have for our time in the Word, but I do want us to take a few moments and really analyze what, what is it that happens in the life of a person who comes to know Christ? What is it that has happened in the lives of those who have been baptized? But what is it that's happened in the life of every true believer? And I want us to think about that through the lens of our greatest treasure. You know, treasure has captivated the attention of mankind for millennia. Many books and movies have been made or written around this theme of a quest for buried treasure. There are some who have literally dedicated their lives to searching the world for lost treasures both at sea and on land. And we actually have documented some treasures that we know exist that have still not yet been found. For example, there is a a treasure worth over $300 million somewhere on the island of Adak, Alaska. And so if your retirement plan hasn't panned out the way that you like, just grab a shovel and move to Adak. But in 1892, a pirate by the name of Gregory buried a large quantity of gold coins split between 150 tin cans and buried them on the island of Adak to keep them away from the American Navy. The U.S. military found a couple of those cans as they were setting up camp there in World War II, but other than that, the rest of the treasure is still at large. It's just a reminder that treasure fascinates the human mind. But this morning, I want us to unearth a real treasure, a treasure of incalculable worth, a treasure that is actually accessible to all in Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us of this treasure through the use of two short parables, short but powerful parables in Matthew 13. You remember that a parable is a style of teaching that uses a story or an illustration, an event from daily life to convey one central spiritual truth. That's important to keep in mind as we study parables that each parable is making one specific point. One truth is being emphasized. We want to avoid reading too much into the details of the parable. Our goal is to understand what is the point. What is it that the author is communicating to us? And we want to do that this morning as we look at these two parables from the mouth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew 13 verses 44 to 46. Verse 44 reads, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. These two simple parables really share the same truth. Jesus is giving us the same truth through two different angles. The context of Matthew 13 is really one of parables. All of Matthew 13 centers around parables that deal with the kingdom of God. 
Before we come to our two parables, Jesus has already taught the parable of the sower, the parable of the wheat and tares, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of leaven. Then, coming to verse 36, Jesus removes himself from teaching the crowds, which is who he taught those parables to, and retreats into a private home and continues to teach his disciples in a more intimate, private setting. You can see this in verse 36 of Matthew 13. Let's read that together quickly. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples come to him and begin to ask him to explain some of the parables that he has just shared. And just before this parable, the disciples have asked that he explain specifically a parable about the wheat and the tares. And the wheat and the tares was a parable that explains that there are the righteous and the unrighteous on earth mixed together, those who are redeemed and those who are not. And in the end, God will separate the righteous from the unrighteous Those who are not in Christ will be doomed to eternal hell. Those in Christ, eternity and heaven with him. That is the the explanation given just prior to these two parables. And really, I believe these parables come out of the, the question that's likely in the mind of the disciples, which is, what's the difference? How do we spot someone? How do we recognize someone that is in Christ's kingdom, because we don't want to be those who at the end of the age are tares, who are separated from God and the eternity away from him in hell. So what is the defining characteristic of those who will be in this kingdom of Christ? Well, he gives it to us plainly in these two parables. Parable number one, we'll call the kingdom as a treasure. The kingdom as a treasure, in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like. So let's talk for a moment. What is the kingdom of heaven? What is Jesus describing? Well, the kingdom of heaven refers to the kingdom of Christ, which is inhabited by those who have received salvation. We who are in Christ are said to have a new citizenship. We are citizens of heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is the kingdom where Christ rules, a kingdom of perfect righteousness, of perfect justice. It will be an eternal kingdom that is uh, composed of all the redeemed through all time. There is a sense, we could say, in which this kingdom has begun in the hearts of God's people. Spiritually, we are already in submission to him. Spiritually, he already reigns over us in our hearts. But the true kingdom of God is coming in the future in which Christ will literally reign. First, in the millennial kingdom from Revelation 20, but then on into the eternal kingdom where we will be with him forever and ever. And so these, king, these kingdom parables are describing that kingdom, who it is that will enter that kingdom and what that kingdom is like. Specifically here, the kingdom of heaven is said to be like a treasure, a treasure that is hidden in the field. 
Now understand that in context, at this time, the people didn't have banks like you and I do in the same way, where oftentimes their, their valuable possessions were, were literal physical objects of gold or things like that. And so they would often pick a place and bury those objects so that they would be kept safe. And that's the idea here, especially during times of war or travel when an invading army was coming and they knew they would be plundering the the land if they won. They would take their things, put them in a box or a chest, and then bury them out in the field in a place where only they would know so that after the war was over, they could come back hopefully and retrieve their valuables. But as you would expect, in some cases, those who buried these precious objects didn't survive and didn't tell anyone where those objects were and thus you had real buried treasures all across Israel. But while it wasn't necessarily common to find a lost treasure, it's not like this happened every day, it certainly is not outlandish nor is it merely hypothetical when Jesus uses this illustration. This really could have happened. But in this story, this treasure is buried but what happens next is a man comes and finds it. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. We don't know why this man was in the field. That's outside the scope of what Jesus is arguing here, but perhaps he was working in the field. Perhaps he was just walking through the field, but somehow, either in work or travel, this man passes through the field and becomes aware of this secret lost treasure. And what I want you to see is the way this is described is it indicates that this man had no expectation that day of finding this treasure. He wasn't on a treasure hunt. It just makes it sound as if he just, he happened upon it. The treasure was buried in the field and this man literally just trips over it. Maybe he was digging in the field. Maybe part of it had become exposed due to weather and he just walks by and sees the corner of this chest. Somehow it catches his eye, but once he opens it, he begins to see that what he has found is a treasure of incalculable worth. Leon Morris explains in his commentary that the law allowed the finder of a treasure like this or a lost object to keep that object. So rightfully, he could keep the treasure, but this man knows that that he's got to do his level best to secure the treasure. After all, he's not the owner of the field, and so if he were to take the treasure, then when the owner hears of it, he might suddenly say, wait a minute, that was my treasure. I, I actually buried that and knew where it was all along, even if, in fact, he had no idea that it was there. And so what does the man do? He goes to secure his find, and it says... He, he finds it and hides it again. That is, he hides it so no one else will find it while he's going to sell his possessions to come back and buy it. It says, from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. The emphasis there is on the word all. He goes and he sells all that he has. And notice the motivation. Why did he do that? For joy over it. Literally, for his joy over the treasure. He finds the treasure, he opens the treasure box, and his heart is filled with joy as he begins to realize, this is worth more than my mind can comprehend. It's more than all of my possessions times a thousand. I have to have this treasure. To the point that it's almost as if he's skipping back home to liquidate his assets and to come back and buy this field so that the treasure 
will be his. It was no hardship, apparently, to give it all away because he understood the value of the treasure. Jesus follows this and is and really just without taking a breath with another parable to say the same thing from a different angle. Parable number two, the kingdom as a pearl. The kingdom as a pearl, verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. So another comparison to help us understand the kingdom of heaven, only this time we're introduced first not to the treasure, but the treasure hunter, the person looking for the treasure. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. So unlike the man who haphazardly tripped over or found with his shovel unexpectedly the treasure in the first example, here we have a merchant. That is usually a person, by a seafaring merchant that would go and travel by boat looking, hunting for pearls. And this would be a person that knew what he was looking for, similarly to how a jeweler becomes an expert at analyzing jewels and diamonds to know their valuation. This is a merchant that knows what he's looking for, and he will know it when he finds it. He, didn't, he doesn't trip over these pearls. He's made it his life occupation to go and to find it. But notice he starts out seeking pearls, plural, But he stopped in his tracks when he comes upon one singular pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, pearls at this time, as you'd expect, were exceptionally valuable, far more valuable than they are in our culture today. To to wear them as jewelry, to display them would be to show the world of your extreme wealth. MacArthur notes that the pearls were difficult to obtain, and the men who dove for the oysters to find them often died in the attempt. So they were rare, and it was hazardous to to procure them, and so thus their value went up and up and up. But this particular pearl apparently was unique. Remember, this is a man who's made his living buying and selling pearls for a profit. And so when he holds this one singular pearl in his hand, you can almost picture him like a jeweler looking closely at that pearl. And the more that he looks, the more that he begins to to allow the realization to set in that something is unique about this pearl. This is unlike any pearl that he has ever seen in his entire life. It may in fact be that the man selling the pearl doesn't really fully know what he has, but the merchant, he looks it over and over, and this pearl, it says, is a fine pearl. It's a pearl of great value, surpassing value. At this point, there's no question in his mind that he will be buying this pearl no matter what it takes. And so just like the man in the first illustration, the first parable, he runs home immediately, sells all his possessions, and buys this one singular pearl. I want you to think about in your own life what it would take to sell all of your possessions. I mean, your car, your truck, your house, Uh, All of your accounts, retirement accounts, bank accounts, liquidated, all of it. I want you to think about that. Everything you own, dumped into a pile, and you buy one singular pearl. 
what that pearl must have been for this merchant to do it with joy as the man with the treasure. There, there was no hardship here, no hesitation. It was just simply sell everything because I have to have this pearl. And I guarantee you that this man, like the man with the treasure, was convinced at the end of the deal that he got the better deal by far. So now as we think about the parables and the stories and what they mean, it's time for us to consider the spiritual meaning. What is the spiritual truth that Jesus intends to convey through these two stories or parables? Both of them actually illustrate the exact same truth, and it is this. Christ's kingdom belongs to those who value it above all else. Christ's kingdom belongs to those who value it above all else. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture throughout. We see it in other places in the teaching of Christ. For example, Matthew 10, verses 34 and 39, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Later in Matthew 16, Jesus would say it this way. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Apostle Paul obviously understood this and adopted it wholeheartedly in his life because he would go on to say to the Philippians in Philippians 3, verses 7 to 11, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss. For the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them, listen to this, but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. You see, Paul understood this concept of the, the treasure of Christ and his kingdom. He understood what it meant when Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? And just like Paul, believers are those who have had their spiritual eyes opened so that they're able to give an appropriate valuation to things. 
That they now have the ability to appraise that the eternal things of Christ and his kingdom far outweigh the value of anything that this temporal life can offer. And the end result of that is that the believer has come to abandon self, abandon sin, to give away whatever is necessary, any hindrance of sin that would hold him back from submitting to and believing in Christ. He has freely thrown it off and come to Christ as the most valuable treasure of all. As we think about this concept of the value of eternal things versus the value of temporal things. Let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Let's say that it's game night for the family, and so you and your your children, perhaps grandchildren, gather around the dinner table for a game of Monopoly, and you settle in for a few hours, and a few hours in, you've got about $5 million worth of Monopoly money, and you own most of the best real estate on the board and rental payments are coming in time and time again as your children and grandchildren land on your properties. Things are going pretty well. It's clear that uh, barring some catastrophe, you will win the game. But here at this point in the game, there's a knock at the door and a stranger is there at the door, a man dressed in an obviously fine handmade suit and he says to you, I have an offer for you. I would like to give you $100 billion, but it's going to cost you. You're going to have to give away all of your Monopoly money and your Monopoly properties and continue playing the game with nothing. Now, what would you say to that man? We'd be throwing away, you get a million dollars and you get a million. We're throwing away that that monopoly money as fast as we can to get that real money that has tangible impact in our lives. But imagine if you said to that man, you're out of your mind. Don't you see? I'm up. I'm about to win. Look at my properties. I don't want your money. And you slam the door in his face. Now, the foolishness of that decision pales in comparison to the foolishness of thinking that you have something of more valuable in this, of of a higher valuation in this life than Christ and salvation. The, The rich young ruler made this mistake. He looked at Christ and the offer of salvation and he looked at his wealth and he said, you know, I'm gonna keep my monopoly money. If you're not in Christ this morning, let me ask you, what is it that is more valuable to you than Christ in his kingdom? Is it money? Is it pleasure? Is it some false sense of personal autonomy? Some false religion? What is it? Whatever it is that you're holding on to is not worth forfeiting your soul. Whatever value those things have is only temporary value in the same way that monopoly money has real value in the context of the game the things of this life have some value but that valuation is nothing compared to the eternal value of knowing Christ Jesus and being a citizen of his kingdom just like you would never forfeit the opportunity to gain real wealth to win a game of monopoly Why in the world would we forfeit the gracious offer of forgiveness of our sins to continue to pursue sin temporarily in this life? 
It makes no sense. The Bible explains that God is our creator. He is perfect in holiness, and he requires perfect holiness of us. But as you all know, if you're honest with yourself, none of us is perfect. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore we are guilty before God. We deserve his punishment for our sins. But then comes this gracious treasure in which the Father sends his Son to take on human flesh and to live the perfect life that he requires and then to offer that life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for our sins, to take the wrath of God that was rightfully ours upon himself and then to rise again on the third day in victory over the grave. And the Bible says this treasure can be ours for all who will repent of sin, turn from sin to Christ in faith, believing that he and he alone is the only sacrifice that God will accept for your sins. This morning, that is the treasure offered to each one of us. Whether you stumbled into the church this morning like, a, like the man who stumbled over the treasure in the field or whether you have been on a search and you've realized something's not right in my life, there must be more than this and you've been searching valiantly to find it. Either way, let me tell you, the treasure is here. You've found it in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would only abandon yourself, abandon your sinful pursuits, and come to Jesus Christ as Lord, believing that he is the only way of salvation. This is the message of the treasure in the field and the pearl of surpassing value. It is costly to come to Christ in the sense that we have to abandon self, abandon sin, Discipleship has a cost, but the true payment for it was not our payment. It's the payment of the precious Son of God on the cross. The true disciple, this text says, is one who recognizes the value of Christ and the kingdom of Christ as supreme over all. Salvation is not earned by our works. This is not Christ calling us to literally sell our possessions as if somehow that would earn us Christ. You remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, but we are called by the grace of God to repent and believe in the gospel. God regenerates the heart, opens the eyes, and gives the gift of faith, and we come running to him, and he's gracious to save. But this text really is a, a call for us to evaluate this morning. It's a call for those of us who are not in Christ to evaluate our lives and to, to repent and value this treasure of salvation above all. But it's, it's a call for us as believers this morning as well to, to admit that while we, we do value Christ above all things, there are times when because of discontentment or other sins that we've allowed in our life, we begin to value the things of this temporal world far more than we should. And so it's a healthy thing for us to look at our own hearts and to evaluate our personal valuation of Christ and his kingdom. So let me just ask us a few questions as we close our time by way of application. Does your affection for any person or thing 
rival your love for Christ? Does your affection for any person or thing rival your love for Christ? Do you daily put off sin with joy because you know that it dishonors the Savior whom you love more than your sin? Do you share the gospel with those that God has placed in your life? You know, when we love something, we want to talk about that thing. When we recognize that something is of infinite value, we want other people to know about the value of that thing. Are we opening our mouths to share the gospel or out of fear of of some kind of uh, retribution or loss of reputation, do we keep our mouths closed? Do you seek to hide your faith in Christ when you sense that it may affect a, a business relationship in a negative way or a family relationship in a negative way? And finally, how has your love for Christ and his kingdom affected the way you view your earthly possessions? God does give us earthly possessions to steward for his glory, even to enjoy in the right ways, but he gives us those possessions primarily as a tool to serve him. Is your love for Christ reflected in the way you use the things God's given you for his glory and for the sake of his kingdom? Jesus says, my true disciples value me and citizenship and my kingdom above all. And so with that in mind, based on that definition, are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? And if you are, How has your value of Christ and his kingdom affected the way you live on a daily basis? This is the call of evaluation given to us as we again marvel at the treasure of Christ and his gospel.